Hello, and welcome to the OmniTalk Fast Five, sponsored by Takeoff and the AM Consumer and Retail Group. The OmniTalk Fast Five is the fastest, funniest, and most fervently insightful rundown of all the week's top news in retail, and also the podcast with the best alliteration. If you want boring, go someplace else. Today is April 1st, 2021. I am your host, Chris Walton, and I am joined, as always, by the wonderful Ann Mazinga and America's favorite intern, because Ross the intern, I think, is like 50 years old now, Emma the intern. Whew! Man, this has been a busy weekend. I got to tell you, I think this might top them of all time for Omnitech. Well, Yesterday, we had we're interviewing Tesco and Kroger. Today, yep. it was Dell, NVIDIA, AWM. Uh- yeah, all about those webinars, Chris, just banging them out. But yeah, there's so much really, I mean, it's good. It's good it's content. Nice. Lots of stuff about autonomous shopping and AI. And I just, I love doing it because I feel like nobody else in our space really breaks it down. It's like, oh yeah, obviously it's AI and autonomous checkout. You know all about that. And this <laughs> went deep as we do, you know? Well, yeah, what I do take a lot of prize, it's not scripted either. So like, you know, we have a general, for those listening, you want to know how the sausage is made. It's like general flow to how conversations are going, but it's in the moment. And so you're working with, you know, and talking generally when I'm doing those or Anne's doing them, like, in the moment, us just asking whatever questions come into our head, which I think is a ton of fun. And the Kroger and Tesco interview, for those listening, is a good one, is a good one to check out. I'll put out some more information on this on social media and, and likely in our newsletter too. But uh, it's part of NVIDIA's GTC 21 conference, which is a huge event. There's like 100,000 people that attend this thing virtually. And I'll be hosting up and uh, moderating a panel with two data science execs from Tesco and Kroger for about 50 minutes um, I believe uh, on Thursday, April fifteenth. Uh, so you guys can check that out. It's it's definitely definitely worth the watch. It's one of my favorite things we've done. All right, now in a, in a little bit more of a somber note, going to change the tone here a little bit from what we typically do. Um, I had some questions last week from some loyal listeners in terms of why we didn't discuss you know what happened in Boulder last week, especially given some of my connections out there. And, and quite frankly, as I was reflecting on it, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't entirely sure, you know, what to say last week. And so I, I, I've, I've thought a lot more about it. And I think, you know, what, what, what the events that happened, what, what gets brought home for me is just, again, and for those that don't know, I lived in Boulder when I was young, I lived there again as an adult running stores for Target uh, in the surrounding area, not far from where the shooting happened. In fact, the King Super store was my, uh, childhood grocery store going up and my aunt who still lives there aunt and uncle that's their local grocery store too so it it hit pretty close to home uh, you know I think what's important from my standpoint and what we do here at OmniTalk and why we bring it up is I think it's just a great reminder and Emma the intern and I have we've all worked retail we've all worked the front lines and I think it's important to keep in mind just just how hard those jobs are and how new things come at people every single day some of which most of us in this world, have no idea even how to fathom. That's how wild some of the things that come at you in those jobs are. And oftentimes you don't always feel as safe and secure as you probably are used to, you know, in other types of work and other types of the atmospheres. And so the reason we do what we do is to highlight that, to never forget that, given where we've come from and the types of things we've done, but also to know that retail is changing and the impact it's going to continue to have on the workforce at those types of levels is important. It's not just about how retail is changing from a sexy tech perspective, but it's how retail is changing for everyone and what that impact could be for everyone. And that's why we take a pretty point of view on the things that we do. So, so with that out of the way, we're going to still 
give you guys a great show today. We're going to talk about the headlines. We're going to do it in the frank and candid way that we always do. And today we're going to hit fervent up too. You forgot fervent. We're and hanging out fervent, apparently. Yes, forever, forever, fast, and try to bring as much funny into it as we can. But we're going to talk first. We're going to talk Nike cutting more ties with their wholesalers. RH, formerly known as Restoration Hardware. I think that's so posh. The two initials. We're trying rest- to make RH a thing, Chris. No, they want to make it a thing. I think you're just going to call me CW for the rest of this whole podcast. Can you do that? Never. For me, Would you do that? You'll never. Never. Do that. No, you won't. won't. Well, they are now going into hospitality. We're going to talk about that. Now, also, everyone and their brothers seems to need industrial real estate space to build warehouses. And we're going to close with a discussion on Ant's favorite topic. Ant fought really hard for this one, everyone. And that is Tinder commerce. And I can't imagine why, but we're going to find out. But first, we're going to start with a little retail math. Are you two ready? I know math is both of your favorite subjects. Uh, I No one said there'd be math. <laughs> no one said I thought we were... <laughs> or as my buddy Phil Thorne, shout out to Corso and the new mug they gave me too. Shameless plug. But Or as they say over in England, maths. We're going to start with some retail maths. And the big issue here this week, which has gotten a lot of heat on social media, is reportedly that retailers and landlords are now clashing over what counts as a sale. Now, the gist of this whole argument is that many leases are now going to a percentage rent. So basically, retailers will pay rent based on a percent of the sales that they generate from that location. Now, retailers are saying they want this measured like they always have traditionally, which is the amount of sales that are coming through the physical tills of the store. Landlords are saying, whoa, hold on a second. Stores do a lot more than just that in terms of promoting your business online. And then there's all kinds of different funky accounting things that can happen in terms of where does the digital sale originate for pickup and store, curbside, those types of things. So there's an impasse. How do we account for sales? So I think it's an important topic. Where do your heads come down on this? What's the right answer? The land, the landlord's got this right. The retailer's got it right. Is it somewhere in the middle? And what do you think? The, the definition of the store is changing and therefore the terms of those agreements also need to change to reflect those changes. And so I, I can see from the landlord's perspective, like, yeah, of course, you know, you're you're accepting uh, doing curbside pickup or like things like that, or you're or, you know, we're driving traffic to the mall because you have an Apple store in that. I mean, there's many reasons why the stores still serve as a, a function and why landlords would want to command both online and offline sales. But I think that, you know, if I was the landlord, I think this truly makes the case now more than ever to start looking at other ways of earning revenue from your tenants. And that means implementing things like, you know, looking at centralized fulfillment. Like, what are you giving your retailers for being having that physical location and maintaining a physical location of that same size and function in my mall? How do you think about malls as a marketplace? How What am I doing as a landlord to say, okay, fine, we're going to put you all online. And if somebody buys something through the mall marketplace website from your store and your part of my mall in this location, then yeah, I get the sales revenue from that. But I think that the the problem fundamentally comes down to the metrics that they're using for determining what constitutes a sale. I, I remember when I worked at J Crew. And we would get returns coming in from catalog orders and we'd have to count that against our daily (laughs) earnings. So like a Tuesday in the, you know, Garden City Mall in New York, like you don't have a ton of traffic coming in, but suddenly, you you know, somebody comes in and makes a return of two winter coats and suddenly you're, you know, $2,000 in the hole for the day like that. 
that has had impact. And so they, it's not a new problem. It's just um, increasing as online orders increase. And did you get credit for the catalog sale in that regard too? Like in the original sale on that? Did you get credit for that in your back in your J Crew days? You know, back in the day. I did get credit if I ordered from the red phone, you know, if you from obviously. I ordered it from the store. T- right? Yep. And it was, yeah, I had to give them my number, my associate number and everything. And then, uh, we got credit, but no, we had to take those returns back, man. And that's okay. I'm going to put you, I'm going to put you on the spot because you kind of softballed that answer. I'm just going to be totally blunt with you. Like, so you, you're, I I think we all would agree fundamentally, like, okay, there's probably other ways for malls to get revenue. We've talked about them a lot on the show. Who are you signing with here though? Are the retailers more right on this one or the landlords in terms of what constitutes a sale from that location. For now, I would say I can understand where the landlords have an expectation that if it's a buy online pickup in store order that's being fulfilled from that store at the mall, like then they should be counting that as the landlord should get credit for for the time being. Okay. But I think that the retailers are going to say no way and they're going to push back and then they're going to have to change things. This so AM, version AM of- and Mazinga, AM, formerly known as Amazinga, is with the landlords on this argument. Emma, what do you think? I think I gravitate more towards being with the retailers just what? from AMS. Really? Oh, fascinating. They, the landlords have, that is a significant, like they have a good point and I think it definitely should change. But like mm-hmm. going back to Anne's point on returns, man, we got killed at Levi's by returns mm-hmm. on like dead days. And mm-hmm. those orders didn't originate in our store. And then we lose hundreds of dollars in returns. So I think right. it's just really complicated. But when you take into consideration, geez, returns, I think that it just gets real complicated. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So you guys are, you guys are split. I didn't expect that. Here's the thing. I am so with the landlords on this one. Um, and I hear your things about the returns too, but I'll give you a personal story. So, and you've talked about this before, but you know, I was running a lot of pilots in lawn and patio back in my target days. And one of my big lessons from that was that it was impossible to get the stores aligned with the incentives that you could sell furniture online by showrooming it in store because they weren't getting credit for the sale. And once you fix, and they were also getting debited for their returns, like you guys said, but once you fixed that and you said, okay, now you're going to get credit for online sales within a given geography. And my buddy, Ben Shine on social was talking about, okay, how do you do that? Well, most of the time it's from, you know, where does the order, where, where does the, uh, you know, credit card account originate from the billing address originate from is one way to do it, or you can do shipping address, but there's lots of ways to think about that. But until you aligned on that, it was hard to get people around this idea that the store is actually a showcase for the brand. But once you did, they were really happy getting credit for that. And then as a result, the returns problem became less of an issue because all of that was happening together. Right. And so what I can say is globally, I think there's a movement where that's what retailers are doing. And it makes sense fundamentally, right? In fact, it's one of the first things I ever tell anyone to do, anyone to do when they go omnichannel is to get your incentives aligned in that way. So it's happening within the retailers. So I think it's a little disingenuous personally to then say to landlords, well, but we don't want to give you credit for that, even though we're asking our store employees to basically act and operate that way on our behalf, because we know how important online is to the community. We know if we shut stores down, online business is going to go down too. There's well-documented evidence around that in a lot of instances. So so that's how I think about it. I think retailers, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Did, did David and... Did David Simon invite you to like his yacht or something, Chris? I feel like there's maybe something like pulling here. No, no, that's no. I not wish happening. that would be cool. That would be cool. I, I I would wholly jump at that chance. But no, I think it's an important conversation. Though. I'm going to keep moving. But 
We're going to have Nielsen on. We're going to talk about market share in terms of how you define it more broadly from an omni-channel perspective. We're going to have a podcast with them coming up. This topic's not going away. GameStop last week said, you know, we're not going to report comp store sales anymore. It's provocative. I don't necessarily think that's the right approach either, but you're going to see more and more of this. And the important lesson here is that the retail metrics are changing in terms of how we talk about the business. And I think this is an important thing for people to think about in terms of where they come down. That's why I was putting you guys on the spot so hard. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let's keep on rolling. Yeah, Anne, you'll get me back. I know, I know you will, especially with Tinder Commerce. (laughs) All right, so Nike has dropped a whole another slew of wholesale partnerships most prominently DSW, Urban Outfitters, and Macy's in a quest for more D2C sales and focusing on more strategic partnerships. And this news comes after they dropped just a few months ago nine other wholesale accounts, most prominently thinking of Belkin Zappos. So Nike's not playing games here. What do you guys think? Oh, wouldn't you like to know, Emma? But oh, contraire, mon frere. We're putting you on the spot with this one. This is the one. Oh, this boy. is AM's put you on the spot question. How far do you think this is going to go? That's the question from AM this week. You know, like who actually, if they're going to keep doing this, who should remain in their network? Like, how do you think about that, Emma? Like, who should stay? Who should go? And what do you think? Who should they add even maybe? Okay, so I'm like really torn on this. And my instinct says that Nike should really just like keep chasing that cultural hype and just drop all of its wholesale accounts Ooh. other than like the primarily digital digital ones. Like what about like Club. Foot Locker? Would you keep them like those guys like Foot Locker finish line? I'm getting there. Like, oh, okay. All right. So I think they should focus on ones like Stadium Goods, Flight Club, like Essence and kind of those sorts of High accounts. End. High end. But at the same time, that then like alienates a lot of Nike's customer base. And if you're like, there are so many people who wear Nike products because they have high quality and they want to get them at their local mall at a Foot Locker or a Finish Line or a Dick's or any of these kind of retailers that you find in your mall. So I think that like, Nike's going to have to find a balance. And my kind of idea was maybe making more like Nike factory stores that are in shopping centers more widely across the country. Rather, and Then you can kind of close down all those wholesale accounts. But I don't know. Yeah, I feel... You're still thinking through this. Well, and that part, the yeah. last part you said, I mean, that's kind of what they said they do, right? They're thinking about now opening up like smaller versions of their own stores has been part of what they talked... Adidas was going the other way. We talked about a few weeks ago, or doing up bigger stores, more flagship type stores. And what do you think? Where does this begin and end in terms of Nike cutting things back? Who would you go with? Yeah, I guess my biggest thing is what are you doing to your early stage customer that approach, you know, are you removing accessibility from people when you start eliminating wholesale and like the Kohl's and the um, famous footwear or some of the other, the shoe carnivals, like some of those places that are like entry points for the Nike brand. When you're the biggest athletics brand in the world, I think that there's some responsibility to kind of maintain this uh, accessibility for all. Really? Okay. So, so like DSW, them getting out of DSW, do you think that's it's a good move or a bad move? You know, I think to Emma's point, you know, if you're going to start putting some, if you're going to start putting your own factory stores or you're going to start taking ownership of that channel, I think that's, that could be a good way to do both of these things. Um, But I, I was surprised at DSW actually. I think that's still a very, um, that's like a, a great place for a family to go buy a pair of shoes and to be able to get a decent enough you know, pair of shoes at a decent price point. Nike was an entry price point for a lot of those places. So I think that that's, that surprised me actually. 
that one's. I'd rather see them. I'd rather see them actually cut back on like pick one, pick Foot Locker or Finish Line or one of those companies. Pick one in the Dicks category. Pick one in each of the like pick Coles or something, and really start to refine your strategy there instead of being at every single one. Like you don't need to be at Coles, J.C. Penney's, and you know Belk. I think you pick one of those and go with it. That's interesting. Make some exclusivity. It's interesting. That would literally destroy some of those companies too, which is uh, something I hadn't thought about until you just brought that up. So I think you got to think some of the PR angles of this too, but Mm -hmm. I don't know the way I, I, the way I don't make too much of this. I don't think this is this big of a story. Like, even though it's getting a lot of headlines, I mean, I think, I think, Emma, you're, I think both of what you guys are saying is right. Like, you know, it's a market-based approach and there's different retailers at different markets. Let's just focus on the U S here for a second, but like, you're going to, who are you going to try to hit? Well, you got to hit the young kids and the athletes in elementary school and high school, right? Like that's, that's, you know, a core audience for you. Who are you going to do that with? We're going to do that with the footlocker, the dicks, the finish lines, those guys of the world, right? And then you probably have some degree of mass play to your point, Anne, in terms of who that is and, and where. Um, I think the more interesting part is actually what do you do, you know, kind of on the casual trend side of things and, you know, how are your flanks exposed there? But at the end of the day, like you cut this back, there's really no risk to Nike. Like if it doesn't, maybe there's risk for like a quarter, but if it doesn't work, what of these brand, what of these retailers are going to say, you know what, I don't want you back, Nike. Like, I'm not going to take you back, Jilted Lover. They're all going to take you back, every single one of them. So you have yeah. no risk here. Like, just figure out what's right for you, build around what you think is right, get the data, and then you can always add back later. So I'm, I'm just not worried about this. I do think I, one thing I do want to touch on, though, too, is, is what do you think in terms of the Adidas strategy and what this means? Like, they're pulling back. You know, Adidas does feel kind of different and kind of the, you know, more, I think the wholesale partners at the high end is still a really interesting question and you're shaking mm-hmm. your head. Yeah. I don't think this is the same thing. I mean, yeah. I, Adidas has always been a, a separate brand. You're, you're not, you know, you don't see that as widely as you see Nike. And I think that it makes sense for Adidas to kind of keep, like we talked about before, their elevated fashion brand. And then they're like their whole stronghold on like the, the football or soccer and, and some yeah. of those sporting specific sport communities. I'm not sure. Emma, what do you think too? I'm not sure you need like high-end wholesale anymore either. Like just given what Nike's able to do through all their digital properties, their own flagship stores and things like that. I'm just not sure five to 10 years out that that's really all that important. Or if it is, you connect to those wholesalers through their digital properties too. You know, which was a part of this too. Like I think in the announcement, they said the quote, you need to have a connected, cons- excuse me, consistent, connected and modern experience as you're trying to make this happen. What do you think about that last point, Emma? I think, like, I think Adidas should just stay where they are, kind of like Ann said, and see how this plays out for Nike because they are different brands. And I think like Adidas is just well suited to be where they are. And if you want to sell the like higher end fashion kind of items, just do it through your website and keep that like accessibility. Like we've been talking about at like dicks and retailers like that going. Be really smart and control that mask. I mean, I mean, that mask, that seems like a really good strategy. And you can always add things back if you have cachet. By the way, if, if, if I'm CW and Anne is AM, does that mean you're ETI? I think it does. We'll get to rest though in a second. All right. Anne. Story number three. Let us move on, (laughs) please. So CNBC reported this week that Amazon and others have purchased old golf courses, office buildings, and malls. That's right. I said it, malls, to convert into retail warehouses as demand for industrial spaces continue to grow. We walked into the mall thing here again. Oh, my God. I didn't even see this coming. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now can I say malls? Now can I say malls as fulfillment centers? Is that okay now? Okay. Send your feedback to info at redarcherretail.com. 
Uh, okay, so the demand for industrial warehouses and distribution centers, which is centers that are 200,000 square feet or more, hit a record in North America last year, according to the commercial real estate services firm CBRE. They uh, also included a study from a firm called Commercial Edge that said that uh, this year, as a national average, industrial rents hit $6.47 per square foot in February, which was up 5% over last year. And new leases are averaging $7.42 per square foot. Um, Gap, Williams, Sonoma, and Home Depot are among some of the retailers that have recently announced plans to open new warehouse spaces or distribution centers as more business is shifting online. This is your wheelhouse. You got to go first. I mean, you're the, you're the real estate maven amongst the three of us. This is like a side hobby for you now at this point. Like, yeah. What, listen, what, what, what are the big takeaways here? Listen, we don't have any more land unless we figure out a way to invent more land. Land is a finite commodity. Yes. We got to start figuring something out. Another key point of this pandemic, offices are not going to come back like they used to. Everybody's heard it. I don't need to say it again, but there's a ton of space that is not going to be used that has parking, that has access to freeways. Um, And as we think about how these offices are evolving and what the new like office layout, what we do day to day, nobody knows what that's going to be like, but there's a very good chance that that's going to change significantly. And so it makes sense that they're looking at reuse for a lot of these spaces. I was on a panel earlier this week um, where we were talking with the council of mayors and we were talking about you know what do, what do cities do how can cities plan for this we know that there's this huge need for industrial especially when you start to think about where those industrial um, areas are now they're on the outskirts of town they're in the you know far away from the city centers but the demand for this industrial space that's close to rooftops. That's why malls are right. being targeted as an area that um, are close to gig workers. Like the increase in gig workers is going up significantly now because of all the delivery required for all these goods. So if you want proximity to people, you want proximity to customers, you're going to have to start getting creative because industrial space is going to is going to need to be in places that it wasn't before. You can't just push it out to the burbs. 100%. Emma, you got any thoughts here? No, I love that they're doing this and reusing these like perfect spaces that are in better locations than any kind of fulfillment ever was. Yeah, definitely love it. You're all in on this. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Oh, go ahead. So, sorry. One more thing that I would just plug in here is that we're also going to get a complaint from all the real estate people I know and all the city people Probably that will. says that you can't do that because of zoning. Well, yeah. I will tell you from this from the one you know town that was on this panel that was talking about zoning and we were saying, you have to be flexible. Things are going to change. You're going to have to look at uses, what retail space, what's defined as a store anymore. Like all this stuff is going to have to change to the first story that we covered in this, in this week's podcast. You got to just accept that that's going to change. It might take a little while, but it will change. Yeah. It's like Tony Kornheiser likes to quote. I think it's the late Don Olmeyer from uh, Monday night football. I think it is, is the, the, the number one answer for everything is money. So right. you know, if the money's going to be there and that's where things need to go, it's going to happen. my takeaway from this. This actually is what inspired me a little bit to, to talk about what we did on Boulder. And this will be quick. It's just that, that, I mean, just stop and step back for a second. Like, I think what this also shows you that's even more important is jobs are moving to fulfillment. There's going to be less retail store jobs they're going to move to fulfillment. You're going to move to certain parts of town. Oh, and then by the way, the other thing that is going to happen is that those warehouse facilities are going to get more automated over time. 
And that means there's going to be some dislocation of workers. And so how do we start to think about that? How do we provide the training and the skills or other outlets for people to continue to make money? Because just the composition of work is fundamentally going to change here over the next 10 or 15 years. All right, enough of my soapbox. On to story number four, restoration hardware. We've teased it a little bit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, restoration hardware. R-H. Obvi. Figure out. Obvi. They finished the year strong. Believe it or not, they had a... 50% increase over the prior year in their last quarter. And they also announced that they're going to open two what they are calling guest houses in New York and wait for it. And I know that's your favorite phrase, Aspen, Colorado Mm -hmm. in the next two years, both of which will include the first ever RH bathhouses and spas. So my question for you both, as I say this in a very spa-like tone and inflection Ew. how many people can write i know right my wife listening to this is like oh my god how many people can do this is this like even a cool story or is this like a red herring to the biggest degree experiential retail everyone quotes it every day what's the answer retailers have to get more experiential i love hearing that on podcasts and webinars what's this do you think this is it is this something people can learn from emma i don't hate this story okay. i definitely think It is like very experiential and it definitely differentiates RH from other kind of home furniture retailers. The one thing I would love to see is like Ikea do this, but on like that lower, less expensive level. Like Like I go to sweetest massage parlor. Sure. Like I go to Ikea for lunch. They have great food. Like I've gone on dates to Ikea just for the food and that's like an experience. So yeah. Yeah, no, I could see it. Like I'm trying to, yeah, like, you know, you got you actually could potentially see that for sure. 100%. I feel like it's possible. Half of like the massage places are all adorned in Ikea furniture anyway. Like there's a whole yeah. uh, vibe there, you know, to begin with. And look at me like, what are you talking about? Oh, they are. Like oh you go God. to a massage envy and stuff. Like I bet some of that stuff is from, anyway, I haven't been in one for a long time. But anyway, and. Oh my God. Uh, I would say. You know, I I probably ate some crow with the uh, restoration hardware restaurant because I was like, man, our people, especially we just had one that you was did. built down the that. road from us in Edina. We're like, man, are people really going to go to this restaurant? And then the pandemic hit and I was like, no way. This is like the last place people are not going to go. And sure enough, you know, every other Instagram photo you see is like, oh, we're at Restoration Hardware. These chocolate chip cookies are amazing. Like everyone and everyone was posting there. So I think if anybody can do it, I mean, Restoration Hardware has got a pretty decent shot at it. And especially I think the as you start to look at the um, the the older population, like uh, this, the 55 plus age group when they I mean, I'm not surprised that these places in Aspen, although they're called bathhouses and you totally creeped me out when you were talking about them. Um, I think that it doesn't surprise me that those are already full. Like, of course they are. Yeah. yeah. Would you want to stay in a place that was fully outfit in restoration hardware? Yeah, obviously they're probably already doing that anyway. Now they just have their own space to call home. Yeah, no, I think I think it was right. Like, I would actually, I think, I think you both like. I would, I would actually take a look at an IKEA like vacation spa kind of retreat thing. A hundred percent, I would. Yeah, especially if it was like I don't know. special and in Sweden, and I had the money. What if you had to put that? your bed together before you, if you had to go? To bed? <laughs> <laughs> like, surprise vacation with your children, and now you got to put all the furniture together before you can relax. <laughs> That'd be amazing. That, that, that was that was good. That was really good. No, I mean, I, I but I, but I think you're right. I think I mean, I remember debating it, and yeah, no, I. I I've, I've been to the one in Denver, been to the one in 
here in Minneapolis. Like it's cool. I mean, I think restoration hardware can pull this off. I don't see why they can't. And to the affluent client base that they play to, yeah, this will this will play their wheelhouse. The thing for me though is I don't think there's that many brands that can do this. Like I was I was trying to rack my brain. I'm curious what you guys can come up with, but like in terms of the number of brands I thought can do this, like okay, Disney can do it. I thought I've talked about this before. I think Lululemon could do it. I think Peloton could potentially figure out a way to do this. I think Nike could do it. I think when you start talking about like you know like what were those fantasy beat? Was the mer the the like collision of like fantasy baseball camps and Nike and that kind of stuff. I think there, I think there's a space right. for that in some way, but at the end of the day, for me, what I came back to was like, this is really an idea for brands, you know, mm -hmm. or purebred retailers. I don't know how experiential, you know, other retailers can be in this realm or, you know, how much they can learn from these types of experiments of working or not working. You know, I think of like Crate and Barrel trying to do food and we talked about like, yeah, they just weren't going to be able to pull that off. And it turns out, I don't think they are going to be able to because it's just different. So I don't know. That's how I look at it. Do you guys think I'm yeah. crazy or am I on something? The only other person I th could think of that could probably pull this off would be some of the outdoor brands like the Patagonias, the REI, Moose Jaw. Oh, sure. like they yeah. do partnerships. Where, so like, those kinds of things. I mean, if, if you're sticking more towards like the experience, like vacation side of things, yeah. like I think those, obviously those brands could probably do that um, more simply than a lot of them. But I, I would say this should not go in any slide presentations on future retail trends that um, brands should be considering. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. Hard. At the end of the day, this is important too, right? I think you're bringing up a good point. Yeah. I could see like a Patagonia camp or whatever that you go to with the family for a week or whatever. You know, Stanford has Sierra Camp, which people used to flood to. That. I bet you could set up your home faster than the IKEA vacation place if you were doing the Patagonia tent. Let <laughs> That's me just true, put right? it that way. Yeah, but but you're right. It's but at the end of the day, it's not retail. This let's get that straight. This is a different business model. So this doesn't save your stores, right? Maybe it does if you're willing to fully go into it, like restoration hardware is. But like, be very cognizant of that difference. Like we've talked about versus I'm going to put a restaurant in my store and that's going to solve all my issues, even though that's like the most dangerous and risky business model of all time. All right. And let's finish it up. Talking risky business. I'm going to bring this last, this last story in. So Tinder is letting users gift dates, their lift rides through a new partnership. According to business, this insider, the dating service said it will now allow users to gift Lyft rides directly through the Tinder app. Lyft already lets users request rides for friends, but this new feature will integrate that directly into Tinder's interface, which I think is the most important part of this story. So Tinder doesn't say specifically when this is going to roll out, but they said that it's going to come out in the coming months. Um, all the same safety features, in case you were wondering, apply to normal Lyft rides. But I. <laughs> freaking love this story. why do you like so this so much, much? Like, I, I think this is not that cool emma, emma wait, were you ever on tinder emma, or did you, you first first yeah, yeah I, emma yeah i met my boyfriend that i've been dating for a long time now through tinder okay um i okay. did not like this story at all like i think it's cool okay. that like i really like i'm all for putting more commerce into things especially that you can like do all of this through tinder's app and you don't have to get sent to lyft's app but i mean i can imagine how to kidnap some kidnap someone this like this that means other people are thinking of how to do things and i just what? don't want Ooh. you could so easily kidnapping. yes you could so easily literally kidnap someone okay so there's this. a safety angle here there's a, a significant it safety angle fully. interesting okay i never, never thought i'm 15 I, years away from tinder so and you've got to help me out on this one 
I can't, I've still, Emma, we're going to have to break down the kidnapping situation because I'm not getting Easily. that differently right. than a normal lift ride. But I thought this was awesome as maybe somebody older who experienced Tinder in a- well, Let's focus on the commerce side versus like the abduction side. Let's just, let's do that. Yeah, no, I, that's where I'm focusing on. I'm okay. saying like, I think it's great. Like you think about, okay, you want to split you want to, you agree, like we're going to split the cost of going to a restaurant or I'm going to pay for this or that, or even Uh, differently. Like if you say you talked about something, like there was a date that I went on once and we were like talking about how much this guy loved whole foods, uh, make take and bake pizza. Like I liked that guy. I thought it was cool. Like why not send him a take and bake pizza or something to his house. And then we go and have a date. Like, I think that this all transacting within Tinder's interface is the key thing here. Like, what are you, what is this going to unlock for future experiences? And Tinder's one of a large companies owned by match.com. So it's not just Tinder, it's tons of other companies that now have the, the resources to start to put commerce into their experiences. And like it, it scales. So okay. why not do it? I, you, you made, First, you I'm made, not selling you on it. No, you may. No, I think you actually, I, I, au contraire again. I think you it's, did. Especially, like, especially as the younger generation gets into this. And we're talking about, like we talked about on the clubhouse on Monday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as the younger, as the younger gen- generation gets into this. Oh my God. Not, not when they get kidnapped, <laughs> but the younger generation starts dating. And again, Chris, we talked about it with toys on clubhouse where yeah. they're, they're gifts for each other. And yeah. like what they're spending money on are digital tokens. They're not spending money on like physical things anymore so as you open it up to even their their dating like where is this gonna go sorry no I, I, no I like what you're saying I think I'm picking up what you're laying down which is like there's a hot first of all there's a high willingness to pay when you're kind of dating and you see somebody you like yes. you really want them to like you so that means you're going to take up that willingness to pay which means bigger basket size there's also probably like an impulse thing and there's probably also a psychology thing where you're probably not acting rationally all the time or as often as you should. And then the last part, because we've talked about going Swedish and all that kind of stuff is you changed my mind about like going Dutch. So like you think about mobile payments and all those kinds of things through Mm -hmm. Tinder, there could be all kinds of ways going Dutch, so to speak, quote unquote, with the finger quotes. Thank you, Joey Tribbiani gets facilitated in a way that's really different and could be kind of fun for commerce and for people to think about, especially like, as you're talking about like the restaurant space in the food space. So yeah, I don't know. Okay. I, I think I'm with you. Emma, are you still freaking out about abductions? <laughs> a little bit. That's what, I mean, Venmo serves this purpose for the younger generation. And I just, I'm afraid of getting kidnapped. Right. That's already there. Okay. On that note, we're going to wrap <laughs> things up today. Happy birthday to Jennifer Runyon. For those of you who aren't familiar, she played Scott Bale's girlfriend on Charles in Charge. Only I would know that. And her name was Gwendolyn on the show. Big fan of hers back in the day. Asa Butterfield, who plays Otis from the great show Sex Education, one of my favorites. And of course, the oh, great Ali McGraw, who turned 82 today. Emma, do you know who that is? No. Oh my God, love story. Watch it, it will make you cry, it will make you sad. Riveting and moving. And remember, if you can only read or listen to one retail blog in the business, make it Omnitalk. Our Fast Five podcast is the quickest, fastest rundown of all the week's top news. And our twice weekly newsletter tells you the top five things you need to know each day and also features special content exclusive to us and just for you, all within the preview pane of your inbox. You can sign up today at www.omnitalk.blog. Thanks as always for listening in. Please remember to like and leave us a review wherever you happen to listen to your podcast or on YouTube. 
And of course, as always, be careful out there, especially if you're on a Tinder date. Omni Talk Fast Five is brought to you by the AM Consumer and Retail Group. The AM Consumer and Retail Group is a management consulting firm that tackles the most complex challenges and advances its clients, people, and communities toward their maximum potential. CRG brings the experience, tools, and operator like pragmatism to help retailers and consumer products companies be on the right side of disruption. And of course, Takeoff. Takeoff is transforming grocery by empowering grocers to thrive online. The key is micro fulfillment small robotic fulfillment centers that can be leveraged at a hyper-local scale. Takeoff also offers a robust software suite so grocers can seamlessly integrate the robotic solution into their existing businesses. To learn more, visit takeoff.com.